if you want to, we're back in Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 3 is what we're looking at. Finish up Proverbs 3 tonight. Wisdom in the neighborhood. That's the title of the message. So Proverbs 3, beginning in verse 21 through the end of the chapter, it reads, My son, uh, let them not depart from your eyes. Keep sound wisdom and discretion. So they will be life to your soul and grace to your neck. And then you will walk safely in your way and your foot will not stumble. When you lie down, you will not be afraid. Yes, you will lie down and your sleep will be sweet. Do not be afraid of sudden terror nor of trouble from the wicked when it comes. For the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in, when it is in the power of your hand to do so. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come back and tomorrow I will give it, give it to you when you have it with you. Do not devise evil against your neighbor, for he dwells by you for safety's sake. Do not strive with a man without cause if he has done you no harm. And do not envy the oppressor and choose none of his ways. For the perverse person is an abomination to the Lord, but his secret counsel is with the upright. The curse of the Lord is on the house of the wicked. But he blesses the home of the just. Surely he scorns the scornful, but gives grace to the humble. The wise shall inherit glory, but shame shall be the legacy of fools. So we talked uh, way back at the beginning of when we started on chapter 3. This is our third message in chapter 3 about how this chapter could be understood in a general way, I think, as summing up Matthew 22. They asked Jesus, what was the greatest commandment? And he said, the greatest commandment is, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul, and strength. The second is like it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And we said the first 10 verses is really saying that, verses 1 to 10, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul, and strength. He's the central three theme of those first 10 verses. So as you kind of look your eyes down that way in verse 5 of chapter 3, trust in the Lord with all of your heart. In verse 7, he says, fear the Lord and depart from evil. And in verse 9, it says, honor the Lord with your possessions. In other words, Solomon's telling us, if you put God first in your life, if you trust him, if you fear him, if you honor him, he's telling us through all of that, then good things are going to happen to you. He says, you trust in him with all your heart. He will direct your paths. If you fear him, you will have health and your flesh and bones. And if you give him and honor him with your wealth and don't withhold that from him, then your barns, he says, will be filled with plenty and vats overflowing. Or to say that in another way, he's basically saying what we have in Psalm 1. You'll be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bring forth its fruit in season, whose leaf also shall not wither and whatsoever he does shall prosper. That's what God will do for the person that puts him first, that trusts him, fears him, honor him. Whatsoever he does, whatever that is, will prosper. That's the way your life will be. So verses 11 and 12, 20, 11 to 20 that we looked at last week is saying we have to really value wisdom. Even the wisdom that comes through chastisement, he's saying we have to value that more than gold, silver, anything on this earth that you could desire Because the temptation is when chastisement comes, when God puts us through training, when things don't seem to be going the way we like them to, the temptation is what? It's to detest it, to despise it. And that's why he has to tell us there, don't despise that because it's worth more than you realize, more than we'll ever realize. And tonight, 21 to 35, those verses, they deal with the second part when Jesus, when they asked him what was the greatest commandment. And that is, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. So thus, the title of the message, Wisdom in the Neighborhood. So I want to kind of give an introduction to that. So what is the neighborhood? That's the question I'm going to answer. And is it safe? So, you know, a lot of us, I live in a neighborhood. I'm in a subdivision. They call it down here up where I came from. Everything was a neighborhood that you're in. And you know, neighborhoods can be anywhere from 30 to hundreds of homes. They can, they can vary in size, however many people live there. And you know, that's where people, they'll take their walks. We have people that walk through our neighborhood all the time. It's, it's a dead end. There's no outlets, so it's real easy for that. Kids, kids will ride their bikes. You know, we'll have block parties every now and then for people, you know, to get to know each other and all that kind of stuff. So generally, though, we limit our neighborhood to, we'll talk about our neighborhood. We're basically talking about where we live and those people that live nearby, right? Isn't that generally what most people think, especially here in America? 
But when a certain lawyer asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life in Luke 10, Jesus says, well, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. But he added, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, that lawyer who hated anybody outside of the Jewish nation in reality, he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And he gave the lawyer an answer that I don't think he really liked. So he's like, it's not what you think, brother. I'm sure that's what he told that guy. So he's saying, your neighbor is not the scribe next door, and it's not the Pharisee across the street on Bondage Avenue, and it's not those that just share your views, your values, your lifestyle. And so he says, let me, let me explain to you in an illustration, in a story about who your neighbor is. And he says, I'm going to tell you a little story about a Samaritan who defined the word neighbor. So here's the thing. When he brings that despised Samaritan, who the Jews did not consider them to be part of their nation, when he brought him into the equation, he's telling the lawyer and all of us that our neighbor in God's opinion, is not just the person who lives next door, who lives in our city, who lives in our nation, but anybody that we run across who has a need. So the world and wherever we happen, whoever we happen to meet in the world is our neighbor. That's basically what he's saying there, right? And anybody whom we meet in this great neighborhood called the world is our neighbor, right? That really is the way it is. So people down in Guatemala, in a sense, they're our neighbors. You go, you're over in Italy, those people, at the time you're there, that's your neighbor. It's not like you left your neighbors back in Shelbyville. So that's basically what he's telling us. That's the neighborhood. And the first question Solomon tackles is the first question that we'll ask before we ever move into any neighborhood. And especially if we have a family and that question he's asking is, is it safe? Is the neighborhood safe? And the answer is, just like the road going from Jerusalem down to Jericho is hazardous and dangerous, so is the neighborhood we live in, isn't it? The world. I wouldn't say it's safe. <laughs> so here's the thing. Every parent, they want their child, their children to be safe. And here's what Solomon is telling us. In verse 21, he's saying, so my son... If you'll keep sound wisdom and discretion before your eyes and by sound wisdom, what does he mean by sound wisdom? It's when you can just think clearly through practical matters. That's what sound wisdom in essence means. It's what to do in the everyday problems of life that you face. And discretion is the ability to understand, to comprehend a situation you're in and know how to deal with it. And you put the two together, they go hand in hand. God, by his word and by his spirit, enables us. This is the wisdom that he gives us, especially spirit-filled Christians, to size up situations in life, understand what needs to be done, and make plans accordingly. And that is the major theme of Proverbs, isn't it? Proverbs, learning how to live wisely by reading, by thinking, by meditating on what God says through Solomon. You have to read it. You have to think about it. It's more than just reading it, thinking about it, thinking about how this applies. Maybe you had something come up and you're thinking, I had a situation today. I, got, I wasn't exactly sure how to deal with it. Well, you go to Proverbs then or wherever and find out what does the Bible say? And that's how you learn because then the next time you won't forget it because it'll mean something to you. Amen. That's kind of the way things were. You put it into practice. And he's saying if we do that, the promise is safety. Look at verse 23. You know, he's saying, let them, let them not depart from your eyes. Keep sound wisdom and discretion so there'll be life to your soul, grace to your neck. In verse 23, he says, then you do that. Keep wisdom in front of you. Don't forget it. He says, then you will walk safely in your way and your foot will not stumble. And he goes on to say, not only will you be safe, but you'll be free, free from fear, from anxiety, and from trouble. And he's not saying that because you're just going to have all this worldly common sense. There's a lot of people that they can get through life pretty good because they got a, world, a lot of worldly common sense, right? Or it's not because, hey, I've learned through experience by myself how to navigate myself through this world. Well, you're not going to get that from without the Bible, not really, because what does it say in verse 26? Here is why we're able to get through safely and our foot not stumble. Look what it says. For who? 
the Lord. He's the one. He will be your confidence. And he's the one, he says, who will keep your foot from being caught. That takes us out of the equation there, doesn't it? As far as it originates from us. That's the promise. The Lord will keep your foot from being caught, taken, or snared. Or as in verse 23, it says that. Look what it says. When you walk safely in your way, your foot will not stumble. So here's what he's telling us. We're walking through this path of the world. Through our little path we have, and there are landmines placed everywhere. And he's saying, God will protect you from the landmines that are there. So landmines in war started clear back in the Civil War. They started using landmines back then. And what they'll do is they'll put these landmines, they've got some pretty ingenious ones if you ever look it up. pretty deadly too to where somebody's just walking along and another soldier's walking along a path they trip those landmines and it's sudden terror bam and you got a limb blown off or you may be dead they got some of them that are delayed that you trip it because you went and it has a delay on it it'll go up into the air and then just shots just thrown out as much as 200 yards and that's going to affect a lot of people over in vietnam because of that war they had over there those people planted Hundreds, if not thousands, maybe more than that, landmines, but there's hundreds, if not thousands, that are left there that every year. There's millions all over this earth from all these wars that are still there waiting to go off. That every year, people walking along trails trip these landmines and they get maimed or killed. Happens all the time. There's a group called Clear Paths International that works over in Vietnam and other places on trying to clear these paths of these landmines so these innocent people aren't killed from a war that ended a whole long time ago. And it's dangerous work. So what God is promising us here is that if we will keep his wisdom before our eyes and in our hearts, he will personally be our minesweeper. Go ahead of us. You know, that's what they would do. And you watch these old war movies. They'd have two guys that were taking their knives and just slowly going along, poking them in the ground, trying to find those landmines. And they got everybody else filing right behind them. And they got to keep in that narrow path because they get off of it. Next thing you know, bam, somebody's blown up. And that's the way it is. But God's saying, you keep wisdom and I will be your personal minesweeper. I'll go ahead of you and make sure your foot doesn't stumble. You don't come across a sudden terror. Suddenly you're blown up, so to speak. Like those people with landmines, he'll keep us safe. And keep us safe, it also says, from the trouble of the wicked. And so in verse 26 there, it says, For the Lord, he will be your confidence. And some translations, and that's a fine translation, the Lord will be your confidence, but it could also be translated, the Lord will be with you. Your side, at your side, with your side, at your side, with you. So what's that telling us here is wisdom that we're getting from the Lord. It's not some impersonal thing, is it? I mean, it's literally God walking with us. It's the Lord Jesus Christ in us. It says in 1 Corinthians 1.30 that he is our wisdom in him. And when he's in us, we have his wisdom. He's in there guiding us, walking with us. So it's not impersonal. He will be at your side. That's what it's telling us here. And that's what's going to protect us through life's way. Paul in 2 Timothy 4 said this. He said, at my first defense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. But he said, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that the message might be preached fully through me and that all the Gentiles might hear. And also, he says, I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. And God gave him wisdom not only how to preach, but somehow he had the wisdom to be delivered out of the mouth of the lion. So he's saying, everybody else, here he is walking down lies past. He says, everybody else has forsaken me. There was no visible help with Paul. All men forsook me. But he said, I had it in an invisible helper, so to speak. He says, the Lord was with me. And that's what we have here in Proverbs. The Lord will be your confidence and he'll keep your foot from being snared. And that's what he did for Paul. It looked like the lion was going to devour him. So he delivered me from the lion. Many times he did that with Paul, didn't he? Gave him the wisdom to be let down from a basket when they wanted to kill him. Just had his nephew come, set all that up. So the Lord was with him, giving him wisdom to deliver him out of many trials. Amen. That's what God will do. So he's saying through his presence and the wisdom of his word, he won't leave us alone. He won't leave us defenseless. But he... It says, the Lord will be your confidence and he, verse 26, will keep your foot 
from being caught. The hidden source. So here's the thing. Noah and Lot, they lived in very dangerous times, didn't they? And yet he was with them and gave them both the wisdom to be delivered out of that along with their families. Amen. He gave Noah the wisdom to build that ark. I'd hate to try to start square one with that one. I wouldn't want to get my first tree down, let alone build that ark. But God, because of his obedience, gave him the wisdom to deliver him and his family. Amen. That's what he'll do for us. So here we are. We're in this neighborhood, the world, and it's a dangerous place. God says he'll protect us through it. How do we deal with others? And that's what we have to decide. So do we want God, we see at the end of this chapter, do we want him to bless our home or do we want him to curse it? Do we want his grace to be with us or his scorn, his glory or his shame? Because those are the results that we see here at the end of this chapter on how we treat God, verses 1 to 10, and how we treat our neighbors, verses 21 to 30. So look what it says in verses 33 to 35. He says, the curse of the Lord is on the house of the wicked. But it says he will bless the home of the just. Surely he scorns the scornful, but he will give grace to the humble. The wise will inherit glory, but he says shame will be the legacy of fools. So those, those are the choices we make. That's where we'll end up, depending on if we listen to what he says or not on how to treat our neighbor. So he gives us three things here in this chapter on how to treat our neighbors. And the first thing we'll see in verses 27 to 28 is that we should help our needy neighbor when they have a need. The second thing is we should protect our innocent neighbor, verses 29 to 30. And the last thing he tells us, the third thing is that we should avoid our violent neighbor, verses 31 to 32. So we'll look first at helping our needy neighbor, and it's in 27 and 28. Look what it says. It says, "...do not withhold good from those to whom it is due." when it is in the power of your hand to do so. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come back, and tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. So here's what God's wisdom dictates to us as Christians, that we are responsible to help others whenever we are able to do so. So here's the thing. If you don't have the means to help somebody out, guess what? He doesn't hold you responsible for that, does he? I mean, if you don't have it, you don't have it. There might be other things you can do, but as far as giving them money or helping them out some other way, we can't give what we don't have. But what Solomon is telling us here is that if there is a legitimate need and you have the means to meet it, you're not only, he's, not, he's saying you're not only responsible to meet it, but that the person who has the need has a moral claim on your help. They have a moral claim on your help. Look what it says in verse 27. He says, do not withhold good from those. What does it say at the end of that? To whom it is due. It's owed them. And why does he say it's due them? Because there's one debt that we have to others that we will never pay off. And do you know what that is? So we should pay off all of our debts, shouldn't we? There is one debt we'll never get paid off. So turn, put something there and turn back to Romans 13 and the mystery will be solved. Romans 13. Okie doke. Romans 13 beginning in verse 7 and it says this, render therefore to all their due taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs are Fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. He's saying you need to do all that. If somebody's not paying their taxes, they're not paying their bills, that's not right. He's saying we need to pay what's due. Amen. But look what he says in verse 8. Oh, no man, anything. Don't be in debt to anything, but there's one debt we can't pay. And what's that? Except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments... You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, all are summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Now what's he telling us there? Love is a debt. No matter how much we pay, we will never pay it off. 
pay off your debts, he's telling us, but you're never going to fully pay the debt of love to others. So we need to help them whenever they have a need. It's not like I've met this guy's need four times. and That's enough for me and him. I'm moving on to somebody else. No, you got to meet it whenever and however and however many times, don't you? That's kind of the way it is. Now, I read this. I thought this was a pretty good explanation going back to Proverbs 3.27. I thought this was a pretty good explanation this guy wrote. Didn't think I could improve on it much of what verse 27 is telling us there. He said, if you have any, if you have good you can do for somebody, if you have good you can do for somebody, then legally, he says, you own it. But morally, they own it. And he's talking about good, let's say it's money, food, whatever. So he says, you have good that you can do somebody, legally it's yours. But he's saying, morally, they own it. He says, the state or anyone else has no right to force you to be generous. Nobody can tell you you have to be generous. No one has a right to do that. And no one can walk into your house and start helping themselves to your things and say, the Bible says I own it. What the Bible says to them is, you shall not steal. Right? Don't come walking in my house and get my cover. I'll probably let you, but that's what he's saying. You're not supposed to just go in there like you own it. It's not yours. It's someone else. You're not to steal. He says, but what the Bible says to you is, you shall not withhold. We sin against each other not only by the bad things we do, but also by the beautiful things we withhold. So the Bible clearly teaches that they do have, we have an obligation to them, and there's something that is due them if we can meet it. We have something we, they have a right to expect in a sense. You know what I'm saying? There's a moral obligation there. So it's all through the law, it's all through the Bible. Exodus 23, 4, it says this, it says, if you meet your enemy's ox, now this is your enemy's ox, not your friend's. You meet your enemy's ox or donkey going astray, you shall surely bring it back to him again. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden and you would refrain from helping it, he says, don't do that. He says, you shall surely help him with it. So that's any human being, he's saying, even your enemy. How did the Pharisees, how did this lawyer that came to Jesus in Luke 10, how did he miss that? Because they counted the Samaritans as their enemy. How did those guys miss it? How did the priest and the Levite that would walk past that guy, they just walked past him and here's somebody with a clear deed. How did that happen? It's right there, Exodus 23, 4. Those guys knew the whole Old Testament. They could quote every verse in there. It's right there. So even enemies have a moral claim on our goodness, according to the Bible. Another example, Deuteronomy 24, 19. It says, when you reap your harvest in your field and you forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. You're supposed to leave it, in other words. Don't go back and make sure you get every square inch of what is yours. He said that you are supposed to leave it. It's for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. And he goes on to talk about grapes and other things. He's saying, don't make sure you get every little grape off those vines. You get the bulk of it and you leave the rest for others that have needs. Because you, us, all of us, we have a responsibility and they have, there's a moral obligation to help them. It's what's due them, the poor, not to try to take it all. And in saying that, let me say though, with everything, as everything in the Bible, there is a balance, isn't there? Because the Bible clearly teaches that a lazy person has no right to what we have. And that's Proverbs 19.24 says this. It says, a lazy man, he buries his hand in a bowl and will not so much as bring it to his mouth again. A lazy man hungry, he reaches over, puts his hand in a bowl, and he's so lazy, he won't even take the effort to put it in his mouth. Like, would you feed me? It's like, your hand's in the bowl, friend. Just... Take a little effort and put it in your mouth and you'll be fine. That's what that's, that's a kind of that's a comical, isn't it? That's the way it is. And that goes all the way into the New Testament, that same principle. Second Thessalonians 3 says this. Paul said, For even when we were with you, we commanded you this. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. He's like the man with his hand in the bowl. For we hear, Paul says, that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such we command and exhort, command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ, that they work in quietness and eat 
their own bread. So if somebody's not working, it's like, guess what, Chumley? There's that the unemployment's as low as it's ever going to get. You just get you a job. We'll help you out until that happens. Maybe if you need help, right? I'm not saying you just heartless towards people, but just get your job, start working. Maybe we'll get you through this little thing here. But you're going to work to eat. You're not going to live off everybody else because you're lazy. It's not even good for you in a lot of ways for you to be able to just get help all the time. You're just not going to even feel good about yourself, so to speak. But what he's saying here, and he's not dealing with that necessarily in Proverbs. He's saying for those that have legitimate needs, he's saying we are supposed to meet them when we see them and not put them off. That's what he's saying here in verse 28 of chapter 3. He says, don't say to your neighbor, they got a need, go and come back and tomorrow I'll give it to you. He says, don't do that, not when you have it with you. He's saying there, well, you, got, you see a need that's taking place. And usually when that happens, isn't it usually like it is like inconvenient? We always have something else we're planning to do. And here's somebody, they're demanding not just my money, they're demanding my time, they're demanding my energy, they're demanding my prayers, and I was going to go do X. That's the way it always works. And that's why he says, you got to love your neighbor as yourself. You got to put yourself third a lot of times, don't you? And you do that, God will make sure you get yourself taken care of. But I think the point he's trying to make here, that go and come back and tomorrow I will give you, that's just somebody trying to get rid of the need, right? Go and come back tomorrow I'll give it. It's like a sign I just recently saw. Free golf lessons dash tomorrow. (laughs) It's always going to be tomorrow if you didn't get it. (laughs) There ain't going to be any free golf lessons. Here's two common sayings that I, in studying this out, I, I, read, I came across both of these in several different places. But to get the point about when we see a need, we should meet it and not wait, not wait for somebody else, not hope somebody else meets it so I can keep my money in my wallet. And here they are. One of them is help, which is long on the road, is no help at all. Help that takes too long to get there. You're not helping that person at all, right? I thought that was good. The other one was he who gives he gives, let me start over. He gives twice who gives quickly. I thought that was good too. He gives twice who gives quickly. And Paul told the rich, and really all of us in here are rich compared to everyone else in the world. But he said this to the rich in 1 Timothy 6. He says, command, Paul gives a lot of commands. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. And he says this, let them do good that they be rich in good works. And he says, ready to give, not waiting, ready to give, willing to share, storing up and doing that. He says, you'll store up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. That's for all of us, right? You got it, whatever it is, and you see that need, and God will run it across you. He says you need to be ready to give, willing to help. And people in here are generous. I, I will say that. I'm looking at y'all. I'm, I don't have any complaint. Anytime there's a need and we take up an offering or even the baby bottles, I'd say for the size church we're getting down to, we're pretty generous with all that. They're, they're real happy down there at the ALSC or whatever it is. I don't know all the initials, but the pregnancy center, whatever it is. Somebody help me out here, right? So what is the good that we should not withhold when we see the need? Is he only talking about money? I mean, a lot of times we think in terms of money. But like I've already said, a lot of times it's time, it's help, helping somebody out. It could be food, services, honor, love. And I would say, I'm putting it last, but it's not least. It probably ought to be number one is prayer. I mean, real prayer. Because it's... We always say we're going to pray for this, that, and the other. I mean, man, oh, man. I mean, but we need to really do it and not wait and put it off. It's easy to do that. But, boy, people really need our prayers, don't they? And so when we see help and we see needs, that's when we should meet them. So the second thing is we should also protect our neighbors. And that's moving on down to verses 29 to 30. He says, don't devise evil against your neighbor, for he dwells by you. For safety's sake, or trustingly is another way that could be translated. He's trusting you. And it says, do not strive, verse 30, with a man without cause, if he has done you no harm. And so what the Lord is telling us here is, and we all know this if you think about it, community is built on what? It's built on trust, isn't it? 
I mean, that is the glue that holds everything together. So whether it's a marriage, a family, a nation, or a church, when you start losing trust in each other, it's all going to dissolve. That's when rela all relationships are built on trust, aren't they? I mean, we all know that if you think about it. <laughs> That's what happens. Husband and wives can't trust each other or whoever and friends or whatever. And then next thing you know, the relationship's gone, isn't it? It, it, it? Unless they do something about it. And that's why God, our relationship with him, is really built on what? Trust. Because that's what Adam and Eve lost in the garden, didn't they? They lost it. The devil talked them out of trusting him. They're saying, well, he's saying, no, you can't trust him. He's telling you. He's lying to you. And they believed him. And they quit trusting him. But that's why he tells us here in verse 5, trust in the Lord with all of your heart. And we're exhorted to do that all through the Bible, Old and New Testament. And everybody here, at some point or another in your life, you know the pain where you trust somebody, and you tell them, man, I'm, I'm trusting you, whatever, that you're not going to do me wrong. And then they do, and they turn on you for no reason. And Solomon's saying, don't you do that. That's what he's warning. Let's read it again. That's what he's saying here in verses 29 to 30. Don't devise evil against your neighbor, for he dwells by you. He's dwelling you for safety's sake. So don't do him wrong. Don't strive with the man, with somebody without reason, with no cause. He says, if he's done you no harm, there's no reason for that. So we're saying this is how we need to deal with our neighbors in the neighborhood. That's everybody here and everybody in the world, right? We've got to defend. We shouldn't cause trouble with them. We should defend our innocent neighbors, family members, or brothers and sisters. And that's another thing that happens a lot of times. You'll know somebody's bad-mouthing somebody. That's really not the case. And that's the time. It's the time to stand up for them, isn't it? Hey, wait a minute. I know this person. I don't think what you're saying, that doesn't sound right to me. I'm not just going to accept that. You know what I mean? Sometimes we've got to kind of stick up for each other, family members, brothers and sisters at church, or just whoever. It could be a literal neighbor next door. So, and here we all can say we've been guilty of this. You don't want to find, be looking to criticize people for no reason or find fault with them or, worse of all, take advantage of them for no reason, is what he's saying here. The textbook case of this happening in the Bible, the best illustration of someone taking advantage of somebody that literally dwelt by them in security is with old brother Ahab and Jezebel. They take over Naboth's vineyard. He had done them no harm. All he's wanting to do is he just, I want to keep my little small portion of my inheritance that was given by the Lord to my fathers and to me. And his only crime was this. He's saying, don't mess with somebody. Your neighbor has done you no harm. Take advantage of him. What was his crime? What was Naboth's crime? He just happened to have his little vineyard was right next to Naboth's or Ahab's palace. That's all he was guilty of. Those two come up with a scheme. Well, let's look at it. All right, we got nothing else to do tonight, and I'm going to be done early. So, look, turn to Second Kings. It's an interesting story. The little kids might like this better. I don't know. Second Kings 21. See if you can find it in your adventure Bible, John. Second Kings 21. Or actually, I said Second Kings. I think it's First Kings. You know, I changed that and I had it written down right the first time. First Kings 21, I'm sorry. Yes. Okay, so First Kings 21, I'm sorry. First Kings 21, beginning in verse 1, it says, And it came to pass after these things that Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard which was in Jezreel next to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. So Ahab spoke to Naboth, saying, Give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is near next to my house. And for it I will give you a vineyard better than it, or if it seems good to you, I'll give you its worth in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give the inheritance of my fathers to you. So Ahab went into his house sullen and displeased because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. But Jezebel, oh, love her, his wife, she came to him and said to him, why is your spirit so sullen that you eat no food? And he said to her, Well, I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money or else, if it pleases you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. 
And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, You now exercise authority over Israel? You? Get up and eat food. Let your heart be cheerful. I'll take care of it for you, honey. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. And she wrote letters in Ahab's name, sealed them with his seal, and sent the letters to the elders and the nobles who were dwelling in the city with Naboth. And she wrote in a letter saying, Proclaim a fast and seat Naboth with high honor among the people and seat two men, scoundrels before him to bear witness against him, saying, You have blasphemed God and the king, and then take him out and stone him that he may die. So the men of his city, the elders and nobles who were inhabitants of his city. Now here you got a whole city doing this man wrong. This isn't just the king and the queen. They should have stood up to this. But they did as Jezebel had sent to them, as it was written in the letters which she had sent to them. And they proclaimed a fast, seated Naboth with high honor among the people. And two men, scoundrels, came in and sat before him. And the scoundrels witnessed against him, against Naboth, in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth has blasphemed God and the king. And then they took him outside the city and stoned him with stones so that he died. And then they sent to Jezebel saying, Naboth has been stoned and is dead. And it came to pass when Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, that Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive, but dead. And so it was when Ahab heard that, that Naboth was dead, that Ahab got up, went down to take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. I wonder how much they really enjoyed that vineyard. I hope they really enjoyed it because that was like the last enjoyment they had once it was all over because neither one of those two died a very good death, especially Jezebel. So we need to listen to the wisdom of Solomon. So we go back over to Proverbs 3. And here's the thing, what he's telling us there is a neighbor or a brother and sister or whoever should be able to trust in his other neighbors, that they won't do him wrong. And Naboth couldn't, could he? Oh, no way. They did him wrong big time. And so bringing it down to us, we aren't going around killing people and taking their vineyards. We aren't doing that on that scale, right? But how many times do we say things about others that puts them down? So it either elevates us or we say something at their expense, get a good laugh at their expense or whatever. Right. Or, you know, we'll hear a report about somebody that's obviously shaky testimony, makes them look bad or, you know, it's gossip or you do it yourself. And here they, they their tr- a trusted friend has just betrayed them. I mean, that kind of stuff has happened all along the way through the time, different times and different places. Right. Or you misinterpret a situation. You think because somebody's got a look on their face, they got an issue with you, and then you start thinking all these things because the devil will be right in there telling you all these things about what they've been saying about you, what they've been doing about you. And really all it was was they had mama's dinner and it wasn't too good. And when they walked by, it was just a bad thing of indigestion. And that's the way it works. He's saying you gotta be, we got to be careful, don't we, about what we think, what we do, what we say about our neighbor. It says when they've done you no harm. Right. And when they have, there's even a way of dealing with that, isn't it? You go and talk to them. That's what the Bible says. So love doesn't violate trust or devise evil against its neighbors. Doesn't repay trust with treachery. And like I say, that goes all the way back in Genesis. That's what Cain did to Abel. So the third thing we say here, see here, is in verses 31 to 32. And that is we should avoid the violent man. Verse 31, don't envy the oppressor and choose none of his ways, for the perverse person is an abomination to the Lord, but it says his secret counsel is with the upright. And so in the New King James, it has the word, and I think King James both, they both use the word oppressor. And he's saying we're not to envy that person that's the oppressor or wish we were like that man or woman, because really all they are, the oppressor, it's the bullies that seem that take advantage of people that get in their way. And actually, that word, it's interesting. It says, do not envy the oppressor. The, the Hebrew word there is Hamas. Does that sound familiar? Because that's where the word comes from. And that's the same word that's used for modern terrorist, Hamas. Because really, that could be translated violent men or oppressors. Either one's fine. Hamas means, you look in those Hebrew dictionaries, it's a person who in cold blood infringes on the rights of others. 
in cold blood infringes on the rights of others. And really, what that's a picture of, and this will help you, is the mafia, the godfather. You know, you don't pay me, I'm going to extort this money from you, and you don't pay me, I will break every finger, toe, I'll break every bone in your body slowly. And that's what that kind of person is. It's a person who's going to get what he wants, and he really has no regard or little regard for the person who gets hurt. And here's the thing. Here's where he says don't envy that person because at times it seems like it works pretty well. <laughs> you know? And so those people prosper, and he's saying, I don't want you to envy them, and I don't want you in any way. Look what it says there. He says, don't envy the oppressor, verse 31, and it says choose. That means to make a decision. Choose none of his ways. None of his ways. Ways And he gives the reasons there for that in verse 32. He says the person is perverse. And that means twisted. They'll get ahead. They'll do what they have to do to get ahead by deceiving, by humiliating, by defrauding another person. So here's the point why this is in this section. They don't care. This type of person, an oppressor, a violent man, they don't care about their neighbors. All they care about is what they can get out of them. That's what an oppressor does. So we have the same thing said in Proverbs 24.1. Don't be envious of evil men, nor desire to be with them, for their heart devises violence, and their lips talk of troublemaking. And so what kind of violence or oppression are we talking about? Well, obviously it would include physical violence, wouldn't it? It would include that. Also social social injustice or harsh treatment of other people, words that are injurious, words that would injure somebody, hatred, or even just general rudeness would actually be included in there. So everything from physically abusing another person to the point of murder, the state taking property from people, that can be an oppression, not treating them right, people running businesses that take advantage of poor, needy workers, or just speaking harsh words, words that really cut or hurt, or just being rude to people with no consideration for who they are, just treating them like they're nothing. So, you know, that's that person. Like I said, we're not generally out here killing anybody or doing violence in that way, but it manifests itself in a lot of ways. So it's like you're the one that just cuts in line, whether it's in traffic or some other line, just because you can and you can get away with it. And you don't really care about all the people that are behind you. Or it's (laughs) the old common thing of you're just the one that grabs the biggest piece of chicken because you can. And nobody's necessarily going to stop you before anyone else has a chance. You're going to grab the biggest one or you're going to haggle somebody over a bill. And you're going to say, hey, you know, I'm not going to I'm not I'm not worried about paying you what is fair, but because I can get you to I can keep talking you down because I know you're going to want to get something out of me and you can just haggle them and get them down another fifty dollars, another whatever. I'm saying that's what he's talking about here, an oppressor. And you're not even taking into consideration that that poor guy you just talked down, he might need that money more than you do. Very well might. So that's what he's saying. And he's saying that person that's an oppressor that steps on whoever he needs to, whether he steps on them or he does it in a deceitful way, either way, he's saying, however you do that, when you're just taking cold-blooded advantage of others, what does it say? How does God feel about that? Look what it says in verse 32. It says, for that person is perverse, and he is what? Or she is an abomination to the Lord. And that word for abomination is just means something that God detests, something that God loathes. It's this internal revulsion. So in other words, that type of person, and it doesn't say that many things that are an abomination to the Lord, but this is one of them. And he's saying that person's repugnant to the Lord, someone that will take advantage of somebody like that. And so it's serious. And Solomon says, so stay away from people like that. Don't try to be like them in any way. And really... Bringing it down to the New Testament, that's really the principle that Paul is bringing out when he talks about to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6. So if you would turn there, 1 Corinthians 6. And look what it says. So he's telling us here that Christians should not be seen to be aggressive in getting their rights or what's theirs in any way. 
So 1 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 1, it says this. Paul says, dare any of you, dare any of you, he says, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? He's writing this to church people. He's saying, you're going to take each other to law before the unregenerate and not before the saints? He says, do you not know that the saints are going to be the ones that will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? He says, do you not know that we shall judge angels? And how much more things that pertain to this life? And he says, if you then have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? He says, I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one, who will be able to judge between his brethren? He says, but brother goes to law against brother. And not only that, he says, and that before unbelievers. And in verse 7, he says, now therefore it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. And here's where, what, look what he says. He says, why do you not rather than do that? Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? He's saying, if you're a Christian, you're bringing reproach on the Lord and on his church and hurting another brother. He's going about this totally the wrong way. He can't, you know, back in verse one, he says, dare any of you. He's like, come on. But look what he goes on. He goes, he says, no, you aren't going to let that happen to you. That's the point. He says, no, nope, you yourselves, you're not going to let yourself be wronged or cheated. He says, no, you yourselves do wrong and cheat. And you do these things to your brethren. And then he goes on to say, don't be deceived. Don't you know that's unrighteous? And the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he goes on to give that list. That's pretty clear, isn't it? And I'm saying I know of cases that happened a while back in here. Got brother taking brother to court. I mean, it's like, do you even read your Bible? We've been we've been taught that you got to take another brother to court. I'm like, come on, that should never happen. So back to Proverbs three. I think that's what he's talking about here when he's saying. Do not envy the oppressor. Don't be the oppressor and choose none of his ways. Don't any of us, hey, we should never be that way. We're not going to oppress somebody, try to get what's ours. That's kind of the principle, isn't it? Hey, so you take your coat, give them your cloak also. Go with a mile, I'll go with you too. Right? Don't fight them. That's the whole thing of non-resistance. And don't choose any of his ways. He says that perverse person is an abomination to the Lord. But look what he says there at, this, at the end of verse 32. He says, but his secret counsel is with the upright. So he's saying, I'm going to keep my distance from oppressors. But he says the upright, that's the good side of this, will enjoy God's secret counsel. And that Hebrew word secret counsel is sod. That's how you pronounce it, like what you grow grass with, sod. And it means this. It means the intimate circle. You're in the intimate circle that people have with their friends. That's what that's talking about, that secret counsel. Confidential discussions that happen amongst friends. So God says if you're upright, if you're somebody that's oppressing and you just got to get all you can, he's saying, that's an abomination. I'm going to keep my distance from you. But if you're this person that's not that way and you're just and upright in your dealings, saying not only am I not going to keep my distance, I'm going to bring you in to my intimate counsel. That's what that's saying there. He's not keeping the upright in the dark. If you're upright, you don't got to worry that you're going to be in the dark. So when he was going to destroy Sodom, here's what the Lord said. He said, shall I hide from Abraham that what I am doing. And he went on to explain to Abraham, he did, didn't just judge Sodom with no explanation. He told Abraham, this is exactly why I'm going to do what I'm going to do to Sodom. And Abraham saying, wait a minute, my nephew Lot lives there and I don't know who all else. And that's when he goes through, <laughs> would you spare if there's 50, if there's 45, 40, 30, 20, 10? He stopped at 10. And the Lord says, I'll tell you, I give you my word. You find 10 righteous people there, I'll spare that city. And there wasn't 10 in that city. But he did spare the righteous that were there, didn't he? Got him out of there. He would have spared Lot's wife, but that's another message, isn't it? She looked back. So here we have the final three verses, and they contrast 
you make these choices, you go through everything up to there and you decide we're we're deciding in a sense, aren't we? And he says, I'm going to show you the end of the wicked. Here's the end of the just. Here's the end of the scorner. But here's the end of the humble. Here's the end of the wise. But here's the end of fools. And he's given us a clear picture through all this. The safety and the blessings for the wise, but the cursing and the trouble for the fools and the wicked. I mean, he makes it clear. So look, we'll read it again, verses 33 to 35, those last three verses. The curse of the Lord is on the house of the wicked. We don't want that. But that's what it says. But he blesses the home of the just. Surely he scorns the scornful. That's the proud. He resists the proud, but does what? He gives grace to the humble and the wise, the ones that are listening to what Solomon's been saying and they're going to follow him and what he says, the wise, they'll inherit something glory, but shame is the only thing that is the legacy of fools. That's all they're going to inherit is shame, but the wise inherit glory. And so what we have going on continually through this is the father Lady Wisdom and the Lord are pleading with us as children to please choose the path of wisdom and be persuaded all of these benefits. We read a lot of benefits here in chapter three. If we'll follow him and follow his ways and follow the wisdom that he's given us, there are a lot of benefits set before us. And he's saying, but you can't let these words, you can't just take them for granted. It's like we said Sunday, you can't just take them for granted. He's continually telling his son, to keep them before his eyes, to bind them around his neck, not to forget, and on and on and on, right? I mean, we got to cherish the word that he's given us. That's what was right in the middle of this chapter. We have got to see that it is, and God help us to see it, it is more precious than gold, silver. Here He says anything that you could desire. That's how much his wisdom and his word should mean to us. The key is right there. We said it earlier in verse 5. This is how we can walk in wisdom in the neighborhood. And that is, we'll end on this, to trust in the Lord with all of our hearts and to lean not on our own understanding in all of our ways. If we'll acknowledge him, then he will give us clear paths with no landmines to walk in. Amen. That's what he promises us. Amen. All righty, let's pray. And Father, we just thank you, Lord, once again for the practicality of your word and how to live with our neighbors and what our attitudes should be, what our actions should be towards them. And I just ask that you'll speak this to all of our hearts and allow us, Lord, to not just be hearers of the word, but to be doers, Lord. And that all of us in here, we have many needs that we hear about that we not put them off, not put them off on someone else, but that we are willing to meet those needs in any way we can. And Just ask you to give us all hearts for that, Lord, because you say in your word in Matthew 24, Father, you say that you will judge us all based on how we treated those with needs, because that is how we treated you. And so I just thank you that you'll show us that and give us hearts to do that in Jesus name. Amen.